Hello, this is Adrian Stone, and I'm the host of Constitutional Cafe, a podcast for informal but scholarly conversations about important issues in constitutional law and politics worldwide. Constitutional Cafe is brought to you by a team based at the Centre of Comparative Constitutional Studies at Melbourne Law School, but we are global in origin, in our training, and most of all, in our outlook. Each episode, one of us takes a question of interest to constitutional scholars and discusses it with friends and colleagues around the world. We have a special focus on overlooked ideas and countries and regions underrepresented in global constitutional scholarship. So, settle in and enjoy. Here's our latest episode. Welcome to another episode of the Constitutional Cafe. My name is Dinesha Samraratna, and I am a Senior Research Associate of the Laureate Program and Senior Lecturer at the University of Colombo, Sri Lanka. I have had an interest in understanding the relevance of the category of the Global South to the world of comparative constitutional law, and beginning with this episode, I invite you to join me as I pursue this interest. Why talk about the Global South in comparative constitutional law? In what ways does it matter and to whom? In this episode of the Constitutional Cafe, I explore these questions with a leading scholar in the field, Professor Cheryl Saunders. Professor Saunders is a laureate professor emeritus at the Melbourne Law School. In our conversation, Cheryl and I consider the Global South as a category. As you will learn, this is not a term that Cheryl uses as much in her work. Rather, in her work, she prefers to consider global constitutional experiences, to focus on the use of taxonomy, to pay attention to context, be attentive to constitutional culture and lived experiences, and to be cautious in providing international constitutional assistance. Our conversation suggests that the very ambiguity and fluidity of the term the Global South could, in fact, be a stepping stone to questions that are central to the field of comparative constitutional law. We explore some of these questions and what Cheryl has learned over time about what it means to be a scholar in this field. We consider whether, in fact, there is a Melbourne approach to comparative constitutional law. Cheryl offers much for us to think about in using the term the Global South in our work and more broadly about the field as well. Welcome once again and I'm delighted to have you listening in. Uh, Welcome to this podcast, Cheryl. It's really lovely to have you uh, and to have this conversation with you. Thanks, Dinesha. I'm honoured to be involved. (laughs) So Cheryl, uh, just for the benefit of our listeners, you have been the founding director of the Centre for Comparative Constitutional Studies at Melbourne Law School. You are the President Emeritus of the International Association of Constitutional Law. You have been the convener of Constitution Transformation Network, also at Melbourne Law School. You've been a senior technical advisor to the Constitution Building Program of International Idea. You're a co-director of studies at the master's program. So you've worked over the years in a range of capacities. And my question to you would be, in all this sort of theoretical and practical work, 
how have you understood the term global south and what conceptual frames do you think you have used if you thought about this term at all well i've certainly thought about it of course uh, i mean you can't not think about it um i'm aware that it's actually used in a number of different ways uh, and i tend not to use it myself um and i was reflecting on that and the reasons for that in preparation for uh this discussion with you today um knowing why i haven't because i think it is an ambiguous term particularly uh in relation to um constitutions and systems of government uh my understanding is that it evolved from uh, um classifying countries for economic purposes originally uh and in the constitutional context it could refer to every everyone or all countries except the, the the usual suspects whoever you think they might be uh or it might refer to uh all countries except those in developed europe and uh north america uh or it might refer to a smaller uh subset of of countries and so i think that what i've done uh, over time is just tried to be more specific about the countries that i'm talking about or if i'm not being specific i'm usually talking about a region uh and i've done a lot of work um that just purports to focus on asia and the pacific uh and i know we could have another discussion about what's in asia and the pacific uh or i've tried to develop what i sometimes call a global focus one that uh tries to take um the diversity of the countries of the system and uh, countries of the world into account without being unrealistic about the extent to which you can really know about them all but at least being prepared to contemplate that there are at least 194 constitutional experiences that could potentially be taken into account. Hmm. I did want to refer to the idea of a global constitutional gene pool that you talk about. I think you raised this uh, in 2009 when you gave a keynote at the third Asian Forum for Constitutional Law. at the national taiwan university law school and that piece has been published since then and that you observe there uh you um say how the discipline of comparative constitutional law might be developed so as to take full account of the breadth of the world constitutional experience thus maximizing the possibilities of what might be considered to be a global constitutional gene pool so as you said um your view is that rather than limiting ourselves to a group of usual suspects that it's important to see the different experiences in different regions and specific countries as a whole and then being careful about choosing your comparators and your focus would that be right sheril yes it would be right i mean it would be um to acknowledge that um there is a very wide array of constitutional approaches and constitutional experiences across the world whether methodologically any one of us is capable of coming to grips with all of them is another question but i think to at least be aware of that uh is important uh and it may and the the nature of the importance depends on on the project so uh, if you're generalizing about global constitutional experience then you can't generalize on the basis of europe and north america it's just not accurate um and 
you need either to, to, to focus or moderate your generalization, or you need to take a larger number of countries, a uh, range of countries into account. Now, one of the other things I was doing uh, with that um, global constitutional gene pool piece, and I remember writing it very well because I was really trying to come to grips with methodology in that piece as well. So I spent quite a lot of time um, exploring aspects of uh, comparative law methodology to see uh, how it um, equates with, um, uh, with comparative constitutional law method or the, the sorts of things we do with comparative uh, constitutional law. So I do think the, the, the broader your range of, um, of countries that you think form part of this gene pool, then the more complex the methodology uh, is going to be, but equally the more interesting the inquiry is going to be. Um, so that's part of um, my, my goal in that piece. But the other part of the goal, and I think it's become more important in my own mind since I wrote that, is to say that this uh, global constitutional experience, you know, is sometimes um, unhappy, but sometimes it, it offers promise. I mean, it, it, it offers other ways of thinking about the way in which constitutions might work and can work at a time when we clearly don't have all the answers. Uh, and so the very title, Global Constitutional Gene Pool, really tells you what that's about. And it's not just talking about courts either. It's talking about with the totality uh, of the constitutional experience, good or bad or indifferent. You raised two important points there one about methodology and the other about not necessarily always having the answers. So I want mm -hmm. to probe you further on both, if I may, Shelley. Yeah. So uh, writing later, Ran Herschel cites you and your idea about the global um, gene pool in constitutional practice uh, in expressing skepticism about the idea of the global South as a stable category. Could you reflect a little bit more about the way in which you have approached the question of methodology. Um, because I also know that you are a leading expert in Australian constitutional law, but you have also had considerable experience in supporting work in a range of jurisdictions from Pacific Island, islands to countries in Asia, countries in the African continent, etc. So mm. if you could uh, reflect a little bit about how do you, how you, uh, approach the question of methodology in these varied situations, uh, I think that will be helpful. Yeah. Okay. Well, a couple of points. Um, if I remember them all, <laughs> as you were talking, I was thinking, oh, I must say this, I must say that. <laughs> um, look, one point um, about methodology, which also I touch on in that article, is the whole question of taxonomy. Um, and exactly what the taxonomy is, is going to depend on the project you're, you're, you're undertaking. Um, but uh, uh, the extent to which you can um, group countries by reference to sort of legal system or historical experience or colonial power or region or whatever uh, else might be, um, will depend a bit on um, the project that you're undertaking. Um, but also will require uh, some modesty uh, in the claims that you make. So, you know, you and I can talk about, um, you know, trends in South Asia or trends in Asia, 
Um, but we all, but of course we know perfectly well that there are very significant diversities there too. So it just depends on what you're trying to do uh, with these claims. Um, and as for Rand Herschel's uh, observation about the global south, well, of course he's right. Um, I mean, as I said earlier, I don't use the global south uh, very much as a category uh, in any event. Um, but many of the generalizations you would make uh, would not be stable. I mean, even the generalizations you make about that a developed democratic world aren't particularly stable at the moment. Mm. Uh, so it just requires you, I think, again, to be uh, more precise with what you're doing, what you're claiming, what you're examining. Um, and, uh, and that's not an impossible thing to do. So that's one aspect of methodology. If you're going to um, try and do something global, taxonomy is going to be terribly important, um, but taxonomy has its limits. Um, and as I think I say in that piece, sometimes it's, it's multi-layered uh, in any event. Um, on the uh, question of me being Australian and a lot of my work being outside Australia, both of those are really important points. I'm acutely conscious of the way in which uh, being Australian and having been educated in Australia and in the common law world uh, has influenced the way I think. Um, uh, and I try to be um, conscious of that uh, when I'm writing or, or speaking even, if I think it matters. Um, so I, you know, some, some of my writing will actually say, I'm aware that I'm bringing these sorts of predispositions or biases to this question, um, but I'm just trying to be conscious of it. And I think we all do that. Um, and I think uh, whether you sort of go through the motions of, of owning up to it uh, or just make allowances for it in the way you write, I don't think that matters particularly. Um, but I'm so conscious of that that quite often if I'm teaching a comparative constitutional law subject, I'll say to each of the students, as they're looking at the various references, just think where this reference comes from before you read it and understand it, because uh, that can very often help you to, to really understand what, what the author's saying, and I, and I do think that's uh, important. But how you step outside your own shoes and understand others uh, is another question. Um, and, of course, you can do a certain amount of it with scholarship uh, just by reading and... Uh, reading uh, what goes on, what the literature says in that particular country and what the constitution says and all those things. Um, but I've long since come to the view that there's um, no substitute for talking to people who come from those uh, countries uh, and can uh, really help you uh, um, genuinely understand and, you know, I learned this a long time ago from teaching over many years with a French scholar. And we taught comparative constitutional law together both in Melbourne and in Paris um, uh, in various forms. Uh, and every time we did it, I learned something else about France and she learned something else that she thought was remarkable about common law systems. And... Uh, uh, and, you know, just that experience told me that that was, if that was the case uh, in relation to France, it was going to be the case in relation to a lot of other places as well. 
Um, so I've, I've learned a great deal over the years from being involved in international associations, from having the opportunity to know people uh, from a very wide range of countries and from having the opportunity to talk to them about how they perceive um, the constitutional issues, not just what they are, but how they, how they think about them and mm. understand them. I think I will come back to that uh, later on in the conversation because I'm definitely interested in how our um, uh, life experiences as scholars also shape the way we think about these issues. Uh, you mentioned earlier in passing that sometimes you ought to own up to the fact that you may not always have the answers. Could you speak to that a little bit more, Sheryl? Uh, well, I mean, it depends what you think the answers are. So. Um, I'm not really a great one for using comparative constitutional law to say this is the best system, now everybody must do it. Um, although, of course, sometimes you move in that direction a little bit. Uh, so that would be one sort of answer that you might be trying to produce, and I would generally be pretty um, modest about that, I think. Um, but it's sometimes the answers that you're looking for are um, trying just to understand how other systems work uh, for the purposes of, uh, of comparisons. Um, I wrote a piece a few years ago about separation of powers uh, in different systems, really trying to make the point that we use a lot of terms in comparative constitutional law that uh, ostensibly everybody's talking about the same thing, but actually they're not um, because they understand the terms quite differently in some ways. I mean, rule of law would be another example, but there's lots of them. Um, but I remember that in writing this piece and in trying to demonstrate what I was arguing by um, writing about different systems of separation of powers in different countries, I felt as if I was on shaky ground the whole time. Um, because while at one level you could write something that seemed to be right and looked right, accorded with the literature as you had managed to access it, um, you always knew there's more to it. Uh, and why do you know there's more to it? Because you understand, not least, because you understand in your own system how complicated and deep and nuanced the ideas are. Uh, and if that's the case in... Australia or the case in Sri Lanka, then it's going to be the case elsewhere. Um, and so um, it's not uh, by any means um, a warning against doing comparative uh, constitutional law. It's just a warning against overclaiming for, for, for what, you can, what you can know. There's a wonderful piece that Justice Cato Regan from the uh, uh, South African Constitutional Court, uh, a wonderful statement she made some years ago, and I won't be able to quote it now because I can't remember it properly, but it's, it was all about uh, you know, comparison requires depth and you can never fully achieve that, but that's not a reason for not trying or words to that effect. And I absolutely agree with that. Thank you. Um, so, to the extent that you recognize the existence of the idea of a global South. Yeah. Um, do you think there are any opportunities uh, to be had in using that as a category? And 
Also, are there any challenges that one would face in using it as a category? Um, well, it dep- I, I mean, if, I, if you're using it as a category, I would be inclined always to say who you think's in the category. Um, I don't think there's a lot to be gained by generalising with a term that um, is, um, may well be contested. Uh, unless you're um, you know, making a broader point about there's no... There's no point in, um, you, you can't claim that uh, North American, European experience is all there is. There is also the global south. Well, I mean, that's, that's clearly a, a claim worth making and you can probably afford not to tie the term down too much uh, if you're making that sort of argument or developing um, a line of scholarship, really, along the lines that you're doing with this, with this podcast. Um, but if you're doing anything... Uh, that is um, more uh, distinctively comparative at at the time, then I think you've got to define a little bit more clearly uh, who you're talking about. Um, But let's say we're talking about um, the countries of the world that um, have uh, less well-established constitutional systems and systems of constitutionalism. Uh, or at least ostensibly less well established. Um, what is uh, what are the opportunities? Well, I think that there's all sorts of opportunities. Um, uh, one, um, there may still be very good ideas coming out uh, of uh, such systems um, or such experiences, uh, and then some of them may be historical ideas um, as well as contemporary ones. Um, But secondly, uh, understanding um, how constitutionalism uh, or constitutional arrangements work uh, in a range of countries uh, may help to deal with also with some of the uh, concerns about instability uh, of governments. In in recent years, as you know, I've become very involved in thinking about how international constitutional assistance works, and I'm struck by the general lack of success um, of a great deal of international constitutional assistance. And I am confident, really, that that is because of the attempt to move uh, developed uh, constitutional arrangements from long-established, constitutionally established countries uh, into settings where where they uh, might sit uncomfortably or maybe just sit on top, frankly. Um, and uh, uh, if you really do want the world not just stable but um, a world of states that work for the benefit of their peoples, then you've got to um, penetrate below that and really understand what's going on. And in that regard, you've also spoken about the need to have national or local ownership Mm. um, in constitutional developments. Yeah, and I feel very strongly about that. Uh, And I'm not the only one who claims to feel strongly, at least. I mean, most of the international documents refer uh, to national uh, leadership and ownership being critical. Uh, It's just that, uh, A, there's some ambiguity about what that means. So does it just mean the national elites or does it mean the nation as a whole? And if you mean the nation as a whole, what exactly does that mean? And we know how difficult a path that is to tread. Um, uh, but, but 
There is also, uh, at least in international circles, uncertainty about where you balance um, national ownership, whatever it means, against international norms, whatever they might be, um, and, uh, uh, and how you make that mix work. Uh, and I really think that however you make it work, uh, national ownership, in, in the sense of the buy-in uh, of the country concerned to these new arrangements, it's very, very important. Um, and you can see it. I mean, I really recently read um, a very interesting book by Nadav Kozlam, who, which I'm uh, um, reviewing uh, for a publication. And I don't know if you've read it, but it's an intellectual history in a way of the making of the Indian constitution. Uh, and he goes through generations of Indian scholars and activists and the ideas that they had and the way those ideas ultimately fed into the, the substance of the Indian constitution. Now, you can agree or disagree with the claims that he makes about whether that was a good outcome for India. I mean, I think given the stabil relative stability of that country, it's, it's worked extremely well. But just to be able to make that argument that this grew out of a, of a debate that had been going on for generations about what self-government would look like and how uh, India would govern itself, was it's extraordinarily rich. And you think you know, you, it's ideal to be able to reproduce that elsewhere, even though, of course, the details would, would, would be different. Listening to you, Cheryl, uh, what I'm beginning to hear is uh, a very strong emphasis on a slow and careful reading of what you're doing, first of all, having clarity yeah. on understanding what yeah. you're doing, being specific about it, yeah. and then paying attention, very careful attention to context. Yes. Um, so, so that's the, another part of the challenge, isn't it? So at the one level, we have text. Uh, underneath that, we have depending on what you think comes where. Uh, certainly at some point interpretation, uh, at some point practice, uh, and then underlying that a whole lot of other contextual things that you might describe as culture or you might describe uh, as context. And depending on what you're doing again, um, one or more or all of those levels uh, may be very uh, important. Uh, and they're all a bit difficult to access. Uh, if you're going a long way outside your own domestic comfort zone. Uh, even sort of understanding what the text is up to uh, can sometimes be um, difficult. I've just been uh, um, engaging with an Indonesian scholar uh, talking about the text of the constitution, uh, constitutional provision uh, dealing with emergencies in Indonesia. Um, and uh, for, 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 an, for someone with my training just reading it, uh, you would never get out of it what he gets out of it. So even text can be complicated. Interpretation, of course, we know there are different interpretive styles around the world. And this is even before we get to language, of course, which is a huge issue everywhere. Um, and then uh, practice, uh, constitutional practice, how it's understood, how people use it, how the politicians use it, what's accepted by the people. All of that uh, is very, very hard for an outsider to access. Uh, and then we come to the questions of, of culture and context. So, um, I mean, this is what makes comparative constitutional law so much fun. Um, but it also does make it um, an endlessly uh, 
um, interesting uh, and ultimately unattainable goal to, uh, to, to, to completely crack. So that's an invitation to confront the complexities of what we are doing, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Mm. Yeah, I mean, depending on whether you think that's necessary for what you're doing. Again, you know, it comes it comes back to that question: What is the nature of your project? If it's a quantitative analysis of the uh, the number of countries across the world who uh, now um, give international law direct effect in their constitutions, uh, as opposed to the number who did it. Um, you know, 30 years ago, that's a fair enough inquiry. It's not so easy, actually, to work out from the text, but it's a fair, fair enough inquiry. But if you're pushing it further and you want to know what effect international law is having on the ground, that's a very different uh, inquiry requiring a much more complex uh, research task. One last question about the the field in general and the notion of the Global South, uh, before we turn to a slightly different set of questions, how would you respond to the idea about interdisciplinary work and the relevance of interdisciplinary work to understanding the field of comparative constitutional law better? Well, I think interdisciplinary work can always be helpful, but I'd, I have to say I'm not minded to make a fetish of it. Um, uh, I mean, in a sense, the sorts of things that I've done uh, over the decades um, have taken me to some extent into interdisciplinary areas anyway. So federalism scholars, for example, tend to be both constitutional lawyers and political scientists, and I've done a lot of work with federalism and multi-level government over the, the years. So I'm not, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with with that interdisciplinary aspect anyway, although I don't have any claim to, to huge expertise in it. But in comparative constitutional law, there's all sorts of disciplines that might potentially be relevant, and you can't do them all. Um, I mean, economics, anthropology, um, history, uh, really a lot. Um, and uh, so, of course, I think it's very desirable to read widely um, and uh, uh, but I wouldn't myself devote my life to developing interdisciplinary expertise just for the sake of it. I think there's enough to do already with comparative constitutional <laughs> That is very true. So, Cheryl, now I want to turn to um, uh, the idea of being a scholar in this field and being responsive and sensitive to the complexities uh, also at a personal level, not only at a, a theoretical or a scholarly level. Now, I know that over the years, you have taught and supervised and mentored a range of students, including a significant cohort of international students. Uh, you have served in an advisory capacity in different countries, including Fiji, South Africa, Sri Lanka, Iraq, Nepal, and also Myanmar. How, how do you think a scholar should think about his or her place in this field. So I think um, I think a scholar does scholarly work, and it's and it's published, um, uh, and people engage with it or not. Um, and I think you get ideas out uh, in that way. I've always been pretty um, eclectic about the invitations that I 
accept uh, and actually um, I don't know that that's necessarily professionally terribly sensible, but it's never done me any harm. And, and it does mean that the things you write appear in places that um, they might not appear otherwise. So the, the, the work that you cited, that global constitutional gene pool, is absolutely a case in point. Um, I think that uh, that um, conference at which I spoke was originally associated with the um, Asian Constitutional Forum, which I became involved in uh, quite early on, despite the fact that really I have no credentials for being in Asia. Um, and, uh, uh, and that's been very influential. I have had it cited at me by all sorts of people all over the place. And uh, uh, our friend Arturo has just had it um, translated into Spanish in Guatemala. So, really? I <laughs> so no, but it's just interesting you know, wow. the way those sorts of things uh, happen. So I think that just being a scholar and doing your scholarly thing, but um, not being so uh, focused always on being published in the, you know, the top journals and uh, et cetera, um, easy, easy for a, an older scholar to say, I know. But... Um, I think is is useful, and that also goes to going to conferences and and, and so on. Um, but um, the other thing to be said about it, though, is that when you are engaging with students or classes or um, providing international advice or supervising PhD students. I think you need to bring to that the same sort of understanding that people may be coming from different places, um, not, not geographically, but intellectually, um, and that it's helpful to understand that. You don't necessarily need to um, uh, modify your own stance enormously, but, uh, you know, if, if someone's coming to Melbourne to do a PhD, then that they expect that to be in the intellectual tradition of the common law. And... Uh, and that's my responsibility as a supervisor. Um, but if they've had their early training elsewhere, then the way in which they do research and, and, and write and think may be different. And you need to make, not make allowance for that, but sort of help them sort of come to grips with the local style. Um, and there may be all sorts of other assumptions um, uh, in their own constitutional experience that can either be adopted and used uh, or they need to be disabused of them depending on what the project is. So it's the same sort of attitude of really understanding where people are coming from and other scholars are coming from um, and then um, maximising those opportunities because they're fantastic, really. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, so finally, uh, a more personal question. Do you think your identity as a woman in this field um, and your location in Australia, Melbourne specifically, over the years, has in any way shaped your approach to your work? Look, let me start with the Australia thing first, because I think it certainly has. Um, and I spoke a little bit about that earlier, saying, well, it makes me a, a common lawyer, and a common lawyer in a particular system, I might say, uh, a system that doesn't have constitutional rights, and therefore focuses a lot on institutions. And I think that absolutely accounts for the fact that a lot of my own work uh, focuses on institutions, whether that's 
um, separation of powers or federalism or, or, or similar, similar things. Um, so I think that um, Australia has shaped that. I think that um, Australia has shaped my attitude in one other way uh, as well, at least one other way. Uh, Australia is hardly the global south, uh, but nor does it represent the so-called canon. Um, it's a bit of an outlier in that regard. It's like New Zealand. Uh, uh, and so I think that, um, uh, you know, insofar as I look at generalisations that come out of, say, uh, North America and say that doesn't actually square with my experience, that's my experience as an Australian uh, and if it doesn't square with my experience, it's not going to square with a lot of people's experiences. <laughs> um, so I do think that it's absolutely shaped me uh, in that regard. And Melbourne has shaped me because, well, one, it's a wonderful place to be. Um, but secondly, um, uh, for a very long time, for most of my professional life, it's been a very hospitable law school, very open to uh, new ideas, very open to global ideas, big focus on Asia and the Pacific, uh, deans that have been extremely uh, supportive of people reaching out and doing innovative things. Uh, and that's just been the most wonderful opportunity, really. If I may interrupt, Cheryl, yeah. our colleague Will Partlett uh, recently said that there may be a Melbourne approach to comparative constitutional law. What do you think? Well, I think that's now true. Um, so, uh, and I think that's that's developed out of these um, these early sort of beginnings. Uh, so, what that enabled us to do was initially to found the Centre for Comparative Constitutional Studies, then to attract other uh, constitutional lawyers and comparativists to the law school. Uh, and out of that has grown the sort of the richness of the centre as we now have it. And the uh, and it's interesting, the discussions that we all have amongst ourselves, uh, all of us, uh, including, you know, Will with his focus on Central Asia and, and the Soviet Union, um, even though we're all coming from very different directions and our work focuses on different things, we are a deep believer in, in the diversity uh, of systems but in a very interconnected world um, and uh, and we all know from the on the basis of our own work how much context and um, and, and often culture depending on what you think culture means uh, matters um, so I'm sure we're not the only people in the world to have this approach but <laughs> I do think that uh, it is developed in Melbourne and marked uh, in Melbourne I would have to agree. I have been part of this community for the last two years. Well, you're part of this community forever, Denisha. <laughs> <laughs> and the openness uh, and the curiosity that I find at the law school um, has been very um, refreshing and also inspiring. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. It's a it's a huge compliment to the law school. Um, now, on the matter of being a woman, um, I'm sure it has made a big difference, <laughs> but I'm not quite sure what it is. You know, I, um, you know, I'm sure you miss out on opportunity. I've missed out on opportunities, but I've also gained so many that uh, I wouldn't emphasise that. I suspect that I've got away with a lot as a woman, actually. 
So, um, you know, my period as president of the International Association of Constitutional Law, I was the first woman to chair that. Um, and, uh, and I'm sure that people were thinking, oh, my God, what's she doing? Oh, well. Uh, and, uh, and, and so it works. Um, and so it's been, uh, you know, it's, it's something that uh, I've been able to take advantage of uh, in that sort of way. I very much, I, I, mean, I don't want to claim that women are um, informal um, because clearly they're not all that way, but I found it's very convenient to be able to run a whole range of organisations uh, um, in that way, uh, in a way that sort of tries to develop a collegial um, commitment uh, by the principal stakeholders. Um, I'm committed to that as a way of life. Um, and if being a woman has helped with that, well, that's a good thing. Wonderful, Cheryl. Um, I think this conversation has been uh, fascinating. It has really helped me to tease out some of the uh, ideas that we've discussed in passing in uh, different moments. I think your way of seeing the field uh, is quite different to seeing it either as the global north or the global south or looking at just the usual suspects and the rest. Uh, it is really a third way of seeing um, the field, I think. So thank you, you for explaining that. And um, just a last question to you. How do you think the field has changed over the years? Because you've uh, sort of seen the field grow, as it were. Yeah. Um, what are your reflections looking back on this field? Well, it certainly has grown. Um, you know, when I first joined the International Association of Constitutional Law, it was a pretty broad church in those days as well. Um, but it was divided between um, uh, the Soviet world uh, and, uh, and the rest, really. Uh, and in fact, the IACL was first formed to bring those two groups together. Now, that's no longer the division uh, around the world. It's a much more pluralistic um, constitutional world for the reasons that we've been discussing. Uh, but if there are deep ideological divisions, they are now different deep ideological divisions uh, uh, and they're likely to place China on, and uh, countries that uh, admire that approach to governance on one side and uh, others, but others struggling with democracy marked, what Tom describes as democracy marked too, uh, on the other. So the those sorts of divisions, I think, have changed. I think uh, uh, developed constitutional systems have become much less confident, or many of them have become less confident of themselves uh, for reasons that we've seen and you can describe as populism or democratic authoritarianism or whatever you, you like, but that's the reality. Um, it may be that other developed democracies have become more confident. Um, but what I've really am curious about over the last three years, 30 years or so, um, of course there have been changes, but now looking back on that 30-year period, I say to myself, why did I suddenly get interested in comparative constitutional law around about 1988 and 1989? And when you look back, that was when the world was starting to get interested in it. That's when we founded the centre, and so that was, you know, very prescient with hindsight. Um, but there was obviously something going on. 
and 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 the something was obviously the the collapse of communism in Europe and the fall of the Berlin Wall. But I don't think we've yet got the history of this 30 years about exactly what was going on. You know, was this just everybody seizing the moment to democratise? Was it parts of the world seizing the moment to proselytise? You know, what, what is the history of this 30 years? I actually think it hasn't been written. I, I don't think we know it. Uh, it's been a period of certainly rapid growth of comparative constitutional law. It's been all very exciting and it's, it still is. Uh, and we can see all sorts of changes in, in the players and how you might categorise them. But what's actually been going on still remains to be researched, I think. Thank you, Cheryl. I think in your classic style, you have given us more questions to think about. And... Uh, I mean, if I may end with this observation, your curiosity about the world and about this field has always been inspiring. So thank you for posing those questions. And with that, I think we'll close this conversation for the moment. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Dinesha. It was a very, very thoughtful interview and much appreciated. While scholars are increasingly drawn to the term the Global South in the field of comparative constitutional law, our conversation in this episode suggests that the category itself points beyond the Global South, however defined, to methodological challenges that we encounter in the field. In Cheryl's terms, it's the challenge of developing a global gene pool. To read more about this argument, you may read her article published in 2009 with the National Taiwan University Law Review titled Towards a Global Constitutional Gene Pool, also available in the show notes along with other references. Cheryl's thoughtful responses have raised a further set of questions, including questions about constitutional culture and the interpretation of context. This conversation also invites careful review of our role as scholars as we set about dealing with these complex questions. As Cheryl points out, these questions and challenges apply globally, whether we talk about the Global South, national ownership, or of international constitutional assistance. Is the category of the Global South, then, one entry point to the study of these complexities in our field? In future episodes of Constitutional Cafe, I explore these question and others with scholars while continuing to probe them on my key questions. Why talk about the global south in comparative constitutional law? In what ways does it matter and to whom? I invite you to subscribe to our podcast and join in. But for now, goodbye and thank you for listening in. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If the recommendations from our guests interest you, you'll find all the information you need at our partner blog run by the International Association of Constitutional Law. Just go to blog-iacl-aidc.org. That's blog-iacl-aidc.org. And follow the links to Constitutional Cafe. This podcast comes to you from the Centre for Comparative Constitutional Studies at Melbourne Law School, and we're supported by the Australian Research Council through the Laureate Program in Comparative Constitutional Law. See you next time. Mm -hmm.